0: Good morning, Doxa. How we doing? Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Nate. It's good to be with you. Um, if you've got your Bible or one of the Mark Scripture journals, go ahead and turn to chapter three this morning. We've got a really interesting text today. Okay, there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's like um, Jesus casting out demons, which he's been doing a little bit. There's people calling Jesus crazy. There's blasphemy against the spirit. That whole deal. There, there's a lot of things happening in this passage, and on one level. The question this text is answering is kind of like, who is the family of God? Like, like who, are the, who, who becomes the family of God? That's, that's kind of one level of the text, but, but on another level for us this morning, there's this, um, there's this reality that some of us, after hearing this passage, should feel a little bit more anxious than we did walking in here. And you're like, great, I got enough going on in life. Do I need this today? I didn't show up for, to church for that. But, but when you see and understand this text and when you see yourself in the text, something should happen in you. There should be like a provocation in your heart where you feel a little bit more anxious than you did before reading the passage. And that's not something I'm gonna try to like manufacture in you. I can't do that to you. But if you, if you honestly and, and accurately understand what God's word is saying this morning, something's gonna start happening in you. For others of us this morning, this passage is going to release some feelings of anxiousness in you, like that burden and that weight that you've been feeling around your Christian faith. This, this passage, when we really understand what Jesus is saying, might actually give you some freedom and some release that you, you didn't know you needed. Now, again, that's not stuff that I can like do to you or do for you, but I, as I, I think as we accurately look at what Jesus is saying, as we see who he is more clearly this morning, something is going to happen in us. Movement is going to happen in us. When we talked about our, our Mark series, we, we had this Mark of like a becomer. When we see what Jesus does today, we are going to become more of who he wants us to be. Our identity and our activity are going to start to shift around what he says. I don't know if you're ready for that, but that's where we're going. So let's do it. Mark chapter three, you ready? Okay. Who, who is the family of God? And more than that, how does Jesus want to move you today? We saw last week Jared unpacked Jesus in this conflict with scribes and religious leaders, all, all these different um, things about the law and the rules and the traditions and the rituals, whatever. And at the end of his section, Mark 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The story has changed a little bit now where Jesus is no longer just leading this popular movement, but there are, there are clear enemies of Jesus. There are clear people trying to bring him down. We're still in this, this idea in Mark 1 through 8 of like who is Jesus? That's the main question this whole section is answering, but, but we're gonna see another layer of as we look at who Jesus is, how do different groups of people respond, four different groups of people responding to Jesus. Let's see the first group starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. Someone say crowd. Crowd. There is a mass of people. There's a big group of fans coming and flocking to be around Jesus. There's a crowd. And this crowd is really interesting because they're not just coming from the area that Jesus was ministering in. They're starting to hear the word about Jesus far and wide. Like, if you, if you look at the places around, Galilee and Judea, that's kind of the, the immediate area, but Jerusalem, they're coming from farther away to come be with Jesus. Idumea, like, the region's around, but then he goes beyond the Jordan. People that were further away, they had to travel far and wide to, to be around and hear what Jesus was like. Even Tyre and Sidon, these Gentile cities, people are hearing who Jesus is. They're coming because there's something exciting going on. This crowd is gathering. Verse nine, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him for he'd healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him this this group of people is so excited they're so thrilled they're cheering for team Jesus and they're they're flocking in they're pressing in they're they're almost going to crush him just to be around and be close to him Jesus is the most exciting thing to happen in this region in a long long time It's amazing, it's a a great place to be, and you and all your friends are gonna wanna come and see Jesus and see the show that's happening, and and there's something really crazy happening in the show. Look at verse 11, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Even when, when someone with a demon sees Jesus, not even gets close and touches him, when they see him, they're falling down, they're crying out, they're screaming. This thing is wild, right? Now, something weird is happening there where Jesus says, hey, don't make me known. Like he's telling the the demons, don't testify about who I am. That's that's for a couple of reasons. You'll see that happen over and over in this part of Mark, partially because Jesus doesn't want the demons testifying to his identity because people are going to get it confused. Like you see other parts of the scripture when they find out who Jesus is, they want to make him their king. They want to put all their hopes and expectations on him in a way that's different from what his mission was. So when these demons are testifying, you are the son of God, Jesus knows, hey, this crowd around that is cheering right now, this crowd one day is gonna be booing. I don't need them to to try to force me to be king right now. I have my own plan, my own agenda. So when you see him heal people or things like that and say, hey, don't tell them who I am, that's intentional, this whole first eight chapters of Mark. But also, he's not trusting the demon's motivation and intention either, right? Right? The the demons have like perfect theology but terrible motives. They know who Jesus is. Their their testimony about him is not worship. They would rather the crowd be riled up and excited. They want rabid fans of Jesus because they know that that energy can turn right away when Jesus does the unexpected and he does that a lot. But this first group of people we see, they're they're fans. Someone say fans. fans. What is a fan? What's the identity of a fan? A fan is someone who, who likes a team, or likes a brand, or likes whatever, and, and they're gonna cheer for that team when they're doing well, but they might boo when the team's not doing so well, right? Have you ever like, loved your favorite team, and then they screw up and you're like, you're dead to me, guys. I'll watch you next week, but you are, I'm over you now, right? I don't know if there are any Aaron Rodgers fans around here, but I know there are probably some people that don't like the Jets. Um, I, I have a friend who's been a Jets fan, a diehard Jets fan for years, and as a, as a friend of his, I started following the Jets, and that was like torture week after week. That's one of the worst teams I've ever seen, but he loves the Jets. It's like self-inflicted wounds week after week. You can be a fan of a lot of different things. You can be a fan of Taco Bell and sushi, right? Amen? You You can love Nike and Adidas if you really want to. You can be a fan of all kinds of different things together because when you're a fan of something, that thing you're a fan of might be a piece of your identity. It doesn't have to be the whole thing, right? You can be a fan of, of, again, your team on a Sunday, but you got other things you're a fan of the rest of the week. You can be a fan and and sort of patch an identity together with a number of different things that you're a fan of. These people were were fans of Jesus in this moment, right? Jesus was exciting. He was thrilling. It was fun to come and see the crazy stuff happening and people get healed. It, It was a cool place to be. But they could go back to their normal life after the show was done. They could go back and, and get on with the rest of life here. Jesus didn't have their heart, he had their, their cheering for a minute. If the identity of a fan is patched together with different things that you can be a fan of, the activity of a fan is cheering and booing, but moving on when you're done with it. When the game's over, you, you go on and do something else. That's the first group of people we've seen, fans. Fans of Jesus here. But Jesus is going to begin this movement we see in people's lives. He's gonna move some fans to become something more. Look at verse 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to them those he desired and they came to him. Now Jesus has called, someone say called. He has called some people out of this group of fans, out of this mass of fans to a new identity. He's creating movement in them when he calls to them. 14, he appointed 12 whom he named the apostles, which means sent ones, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. As he's called them to himself, as he's given them a new kind of identity, he's also given them new activity. Their activity is to be with him and be around him, be one of his followers, but he's also given them the authority to preach the things they've heard him say and to cast out demons. They have spiritual authority derived from Jesus, given from Jesus to go do the things that he's done and say the things they've heard him say. Their identity has shifted because of the call of Jesus on their lives. And being a follower of a rabbi like Jesus in this time was a big deal. Like people would know you for who your rabbi, who your teacher was. In fact, later on when you see Paul, the apostle Paul, people knew that he was one of the students of a famous rabbi, Gamaliel. People knew like, oh, you're one of Gamaliel's guys. It was a sign of status and an authority to be one of a famous rabbi's followers. So these people had been called out of the crowd of fans to be the follower of a famous, popular rabbi in this moment. How they see themselves is different. Hey, I'm a follower of Rabbi Jesus. I'm a follower of the guy who is leading this popular movement right now. I get to be with him. I get to hear the kinds of conversations. I get to ask him questions. I get get to be one of his people. I'm a follower. Verse 16, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boergenes, that is, the Sons of Thunder. It's a great nickname, right? Sounds like a metal band, Sons of Thunder. Let's go. Um, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. We could preach a whole message on just how interesting and diverse this group is, but I want you to notice a couple things. One, Jesus picks 12 of them. That's intentional, right? He's he's showing them and showing the people around, like, this is the recreation of Israel. This is like, like there's 12 tribes and there's 12 apostles. I'm doing something here to show you what the people of God look like. So they're all Jewish men, but they're very, very different. One of the names in there, Matthew, that's another name for Levi, who we saw a, a chapter ago. Levi was a tax collector, so he was a collaborator with the Romans. If you remember, like, these people were hated because they were traitors to their friends, their family, their community. They traded status and wealth for family. So Matthew is one of the followers of Jesus now. And Jesus got in trouble for showing up to his house because it was full of sinners. Like, people were mad at Jesus for even hanging out with Matthew's friends. That's one of the guys in here, but another guy, Simon the Zealot. Someone say Zealot. zealot. Okay, Zealots were the, one of the, the four main groups of people um, that were sort of the leaders in Israel. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. And Zealots' main deal was like, hey, we're going to bring the kingdom of God here by killing a bunch of Romans. That's our strategy, right? I don't know how, like, politics conversations go around the dinner table, but if someone is, is trying to assassinate political leaders, like, you should call somebody on that, okay? I don't know if that's for you today, but... Listen to it. Okay, but their, their idea was if we, just, if we just rile up the people of Israel, if we start violently going after these Roman people, then the, the kingdom of God is going to come, the Messiah is going to come through this movement. That is the way we accomplish God's will. Just like in the Old Testament, we went and conquered the land and we, we fought the pagans, whatever, we're going to do that again today. And so they would carry daggers on them and they would assassinate Roman leaders, soldiers, Maybe even tax collectors. So all of a sudden, Jesus has called these people around himself, and they look at each other, and they're like, wait, you made it in? You made it in? <laughs> like, I, I don't know, but their, their identity is starting to shift a little bit. We see because they've all been called by the same Jesus. And they're going to have to start following him together, like walking behind him together and having a different kind of conversation than they used to have. I mean, beyond that, we've got fishermen and intellectuals. We have all kinds of different people represented by these 12 men that are now followers of Jesus. Their identity is starting to shift from from how we used to belong, the teams we used to be on, to a new identity. And their activity is being with Jesus. That is the first thing that that it says, right? In, In verse 14, they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. The, the withness to Jesus, being around him comes before any of the preaching, any of the healing, anything like that. The activity of their life has shifted from being a fan to being a follower. We're going to unpack that a little bit more coming up. But there's, there's another group on the scene that's going to be really pivotal later on. Look at verse 20. Then he went home. And you're assuming that his followers are with him because that was their identity. Now they go with him, they're around him and the crowd gathered again. There's the crowd. The fans are always there. They're looking for a good show. So they cannot even eat. These fans are rabid and pressing in so that that Jesus cannot eat. I have never been like so popular that I didn't have space to eat, right? I cannot even imagine what is going on in Jesus' life. Look at verse 21. When his family heard it, heard that he has gathered these followers, heard that the crowd is pressing, and when they heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying his family, his mother, his brothers, they were saying he's out of his mind. Jesus is crazy. Like, don't listen to him. Like, like don't, don't worry about it. Like, just, just bring Jesus over to us. He's crazy. Why do you think they were saying that? Like, the text doesn't tell us exactly their motivation, what was going on, but you can, you can imagine <laughs> Jesus for 30 years he hasn't preached he hasn't done any of this stuff he wasn't he wasn't telling them oh I'm aspiring to lead a popular move like that that's not what Jesus was about those 30 years he was faithful he was submissive he was walking in the will of God and all of a sudden this flashpoint of people moving from all around the region to just be around him so much so that they're going to crush him and maybe they actually thought he was crazy but more likely they were so freaked out and confused by the fame and the popularity they were willing to say whatever just to to get some space, just to move this off because in this society, family reputation and closeness, that mattered so, so much. When Jesus is getting popular and all this stuff, the family would feel a pressure. They would feel oppressed from the crowd as well. Maybe not physically crushing in, but socially, the expectation, their experience of life would be dramatically changed by the popularity of Jesus. So so this is maybe just my reading, but I think they're panicking right now. They're willing to say whatever they can just to get some peace and some quiet and some space and to let this whole crazy rabid fan movement just just die down a little bit and get back to life. They didn't sign up for this. We're gonna see them show up again in a moment, but we need to see one more group of people here. Related to what we read in, in chapter three, verse six. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. We've seen the scribes in chapter two. They were the teachers of the Pharisees. Maybe they were in collusion with the Pharisees and the Herodians to destroy Jesus. I think that's, that's likely here. They have an agenda and a mission, and what they're saying is, no, 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 I, I can't disagree that Jesus is doing miraculous things, but he's playing for a different team, I can't disagree that that Jesus is doing some amazing, astounding things. But listen to me, Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. That's why he has authority over demons. There's a couple things weird about this. One, exorcisms were not uncommon at that time. But the way the exorcisms would happen was there would be rituals and washings and and scripture set over the person. It It was a whole process and the way Jesus did it was totally different he would look at a person and say hey, get out of them. Like his level of authority and command was, was different than anything else they had seen before and so, so they can't write off what Jesus is doing, bringing healing and freedom to people, but they can question the motives. They can sow seeds of doubt. If they're gonna destroy Jesus, they can't destroy him for what he's doing, healing people, but they can, they can undermine the motivation that people think he has. Maybe their hopes here was that people would, would pick up stones and try to kill Jesus. Well, if he's got a demon, we shouldn't listen to him and follow him. In fact, we should get rid of him. These people are foes. Someone say foe. I know it's cute. Fans, followers, foes, whatever. But, but they're enemies and they're in opposition to Jesus. Their, their worldview has made them cynically twist the healing that they've seen in front of them to be something completely 180 from what it actually is. They can't look at the miracles of Jesus for what they are. Their heart posture says Everything about the world around them. The way they look at Jesus that has been completely twisted and warped because of their hearts, not because of what Jesus has said and done. So how does Jesus treat foes? How does Jesus treat these people who are slandering him? They're not saying this to his face, they're saying this to the crowd, the fans, they're, they're saying this to other people. How does Jesus treat foes like this? Look at verse 23. He called them to him he said to them in parables, now pause there, Jesus has called them to him. We heard him do that from fans becoming followers, and now he's going to the foes, he's saying, hey, come to me, I want to talk to you. I want you to understand, I I want to help you, I want to speak to your heart, I want something to happen in you. He doesn't write them off, he doesn't go and talk to the crowd about them, he's talking to them, he's inviting them to the table to come talk to him. He said them in parables. A parable is a story or a picture with one main point, okay? An allegory ha- can have like multiple points, but a parable's got one main point. He's gonna try to give them a picture to help them understand what's going on, who he is and, and what's happening in his ministry. Go to verse 23. He called them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. He's saying, the work I'm doing is evidence of the fact that I'm not on Satan's team. You say I've got the spirit of the prince of demons I'm possessed, then why would I heal people? It makes no sense. The evidence in front of you does not add up to the conclusion you've got. So, so why are you saying this? If you just thought for a minute objectively, you would see me casting out demons is not the game plan of the enemy. If that was his game plan, he would be done. But this line about the strong man, he's saying, yes, the enemy is a strong, but one who is stronger is here. The enemy might have some power to bind and oppress people, but one one who can bind him is here and is here to to free the people, to plunder his captives and to to lead to healing and freedom. I, I think maybe Jesus is trying to hint to them and show them, hey, one who is stronger than Satan is here. Who do you think that might be? Who could be stronger? God. He doesn't say it explicitly, but I think if you read between the lines, he's trying to to beg and show them, speak to their hearts like I'm God. Can't you see it? The one stronger than the evil one. But listen to me, what is the identity of the scribes here? What is the identity of a foe? A foe is someone who is, is willfully opposed to Jesus. You can be for all kinds of other things, whatever worldview or religion or or system that you subscribe to, but the main defining characteristic is a foe, how they see Jesus, the opposition they have towards Jesus. And it's a heart posture. Their activity here is slandering Jesus, looking at the miracles and the work he is doing and say, no. No, you're not who you say you are. You are not good. You're certainly not God. But Jesus has already called them to himself. He's given them parables and he's going to give them a stern warning here. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Whatever blasphemies they utter. A blasphemy is speaking like sacrilegiously against holy things. Speaking against holy things in a way that, that demeans them and devalues them. We don't have a, a strong sense of like holiness and purity kind of culturally. But for them, they would have understood blasphemy is a big deal. You stone people to death for blasphemy in their day and age. Whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they're saying he has an unclean spirit. Maybe you've heard of this idea, the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Spirit. Maybe even because of your church background, you've had some kind of like fear and worry in your heart. Like, have I accidentally done it? am I gonna one day accidentally like blaspheme the spirit? Like, am I gonna not be forgiven for something at the end of time? Like, Maybe again, you grew up with a, with a perspective like, I hope I don't step on that landmine because what if I die and I stand before God and he goes, gotcha. Like you accidentally did that along the way, but too bad, you hit it. Here's the thing about a warning. A warning tells you something about the severity of the thing that you're running into, but also the character of the person warning, right? my home I've got a not quite one-year-old and a three-year-old and there's lots of warnings going on and they're of the very basic variety it's like don't touch that right it sounds like a command but it's a warning okay or like hey um don't eat dirt man like I don't know my one-year-old can't understand and I'm not like articulating to him all the reasons why he shouldn't eat dirt but we warn him a lot about that don't climb up the stairs by yourself when I'm not there because you're going to fall, right? The, the warnings come fast and frequently. Even for my, for my three-year-old, it's like, hey, you should eat food at dinnertime because I'm not going to give you snacks all the way to bedtime. That is a warning that happens almost every single night. There are other kinds of warnings in our society that um, are a little bit more silly than that. These are the warnings that I feel like lawyers made somebody write, you know what I'm saying? Like the sleeping pills that say, like, will cause drowsiness, watch out, right? Yes, Thank you very much. Or there, um, some coffee cups say, hey, do not pour this on your crotch. It will be hot, right? Fair enough. The, that, that kind of warning makes me a little bit cynical, okay? Like, great, if I was planning on doing that, I won't anymore. Thank you so much for your help, right? When, we, when we're surrounded by so many warnings that probably were forced to be put on there, I'm not going to try to understand the situation that happened to lead to that, but... When we have warnings like that all over the place, you can get a little cynical about warnings, you know? It's more lawyer talk, something slapped on, you had to say it, whatever. We're assessing the character of the person giving the warning. What's the character of the person giving this warning? A warning severe, a warning with eternal consequences. Jesus did not have to call them to himself, these foes, these people who are willfully opposed to him. But in his love and kindness, he invited them to come to him and he warned them that the course of action they were taking, the heart posture they had that led to the slander, it has eternal consequences. The conscious reality that is hell awaiting them. Here's what the blasphemy of the spirit is. It's looking at the work of the spirit, testifying to Jesus' character and nature, saying hey, this is the savior, this is the promised one, this is God in flesh who you've been waiting for. It's looking at all of that and saying no willfully, intentionally, consistently saying, no, I don't believe it, I don't want it, I am not gonna submit to Jesus. That's the blasphemy of the Spirit. And, and so let me tell you, if you, if you have been like, trying to follow Jesus but worried that you're gonna somehow stumble into this, that's not the character of our God. Our God doesn't have some secret landmine out there that, that hopefully you don't step on along the way. He was so upfront and clear with them because he cared for them. Even when they were slandering him, he called them to himself to warn them face to face because he's good. Like maybe the cynicism around warnings in our culture, maybe you actually have read that into God's character. Rather than looking at who he is, you've, you've read something else into him. Maybe the anxiousness you've been feeling in your heart around God is not actually because of God. All right, let's keep going. We've seen fans, we've seen followers, we've seen foes. We've got one more F for you, Family so cute, I know. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers came. They're back. They've been calling him crazy. Jesus has been confronting people. They they come back, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. If they can't give the crowd to give him up, they're going to try to get him to come, and and maybe, maybe they're going to try to talk some sense into him. Maybe they're going to try to to kidnap him and pull him out of there. We don't don't know what they were thinking, but they're calling to him. In verse 32, a crowd was sitting around him. There they are again. The fans have got to be there. See the action. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, who are my mother and my brothers? I love when, when Jesus asks questions because you know something's about to pop off, right? And, and they're like, what, is he really crazy? He doesn't know his mom? Ooh, like the fans were probably like going wild at this thing. But, but here's one thing you need to see from those couple verses. Blood did not get these people to see Jesus accurately. His mother and brothers, they were not seeing Jesus clearly for who he was, even though they were blood-related. They weren't born into the knowledge of who God is. You were not born into even the spiritual family of God. We're going to see that more in a minute here. But blood and, and being around these things of God did not lead to spiritual insight for them in this moment. They weren't born into it. Verse 34, looking about at those who sat around him, his followers, these people he's called to himself, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the family that God is drawing together, this diverse and beautiful and interesting family drawn together, sitting with Jesus. But if you read verse 35 and you ask the question, how do you become part of God's family? This is what you might see. Okay, how do you become part of God's family? Well, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Then if I just do God's will, then I'll be family. If I just do God's will, if I just work hard and if I just do these things, then I'll finally feel the closeness to God and his people that I've been longing for. I know family can be a loaded term. Maybe maybe you've had a really poor experience of family. And so when you think about the family of God, it doesn't have these positive connotations for you. So the idea of obeying your way in, it sounds like this mountain to trudge up. Is that what Christianity has to offer? And maybe that's even the perspective you've had on church, like, okay, I've just got to obey, I've got to do God's will, I've got to do enough, do enough, do enough, and one day I'll finally feel close to God. One day I'll finally feel close to his people if I just work hard enough. If I came over to your house and ate a meal, I'm assuming you're a good cook, so I'm going to eat seconds, this is going to be great, it's going to be a good time, and afterwards I do the dishes, you might be like, wow, thanks, man, that's so great, I'll be like, it's nothing, you've made a great meal, this is awesome, let's go. And then I go to your closet, and I grab a vacuum and plug that sucker in, or if it's a Dyson, we fancy, where I just grab it, the stick, and I just start going on your living room, and I'm just smiling at you the whole time, right? Man, that meal was so good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. How would you feel about me in that moment? You'd be like, well, I think he's nice, but he's very strange. I finish vacuuming, and I'm like, hey, let me go clean your toilets. (laughs) Thank you so much for dinner. It was so nice, Right? Am I, am I getting closer to like getting a room in your house that way? Are you like, oh wow, here's your bed. You've earned your place in the household, right? Is that how family works? If I just work hard enough, if I vacuum your floors and clean your toilet, then all of a sudden I'm part of your family? No, you're gonna kick me out of the house, right? If I start putting on my gloves to clean your toilet, you're like, it's time to go, Pastor, let's leave, right? That's not how we treat each other. <sighs> Actually, don't call me Pastor Native, but I appreciate you, Wyatt. <laughs> I'm not opposed to it, whatever, it's fine. Okay, uh, you can call me Nate, but... If you start treating your blood family like that, hey, if you don't obey, if you don't do these things, get out of my house. Is that a good family? Is that how family treats each other? I'm not saying don't, don't have expectations for your family, but if, if obedience could either gain or lose your status as family, that doesn't seem to be family anymore. That's not how family works. All of us know that. You don't obey your way into a family. So why do we read what Jesus says here and we flip it all the way around? I gotta obey my way in. Thank you. One, all right. Here's what Jesus is doing and what he's done consistently this whole passage. He calls people to himself to be with him. And he gives a new identity to them. And what this is saying, verse 35, is I'm gonna give you identity and status as family and that will lead to activity. If I give you the status of family members with me, that will lead to the activity of doing God's will because you've seen me. You know me and when you've seen the son, you know what the father is like. You have a seat at my family table. Let me just ask you this question. Who are you most like in this passage? Which group of people? We've seen fans, we've seen foes, we've seen followers, we've seen family. Who are you most like? Are you a foe this morning? Where you have this willful opposition in your heart against God. In fact, everything I've been saying, you've been interpreting through a cynical lens. You have willfully and consistently pushed against who Jesus is because you know it's gonna cost you. Are you a fan? Man, I love the music, this place is popping, like this is a great time. Are you one of Jesus' fans? He's a part of your life and part of your identity, but so is Taco Bell. Are you a follower? Working hard to be faithful and dutiful and and do the things, and it's helpful to have a, a famous rabbi like Jesus? Or are you family this morning? Learning to walk in and do the will of God. Here's, I think, what this passage is trying to show us. Jesus invites foes to himself. He calls fans to be followers, and he calls his followers his family. Ultimately, Jesus makes foes into family. How does he do this? How how does he accomplish this? Listen to me. Every single one of us begins as foes, as enemies of God. Every single one of us starts on this level ground of of trying to make either Jesus a piece of our identity or pushing against Jesus. Every single one of us starts not, not with something in the bank of God, but willfully disobedient and pushing against the knowledge of God. I don't care if you were raised in Christianity or born in a good family or whatever. I don't care if you've had the craziest, wildest story ever. All of us are equal in our rebellion and opposition to the God of the universe, we're estranged. We are orphans. We are not part of the family of God. Don't use lines like, we're all God's children. Like, we're children that have run away and spat in the face of our Father. But what is the character of our good Father? How does that Father treat people like us? We sent the Son. God in flesh, the firstborn son over the household, the one that deserves all glory, the whole inheritance of heaven. Jesus is God in flesh, and he, as a good son, stepped in to our mess. He didn't just step in and show you a better way to live and and how to read your Bible and all this stuff. He actually stepped in to take your place, your willful opposition to the God of the universe. Jesus said, hey, everything you deserve, I will take on my back. That's what he did on the cross, He took your rebellion and your pushing away or your fandom. He took those things on himself and in exchange he offered you a seat at the Father's table. This is the amazing thing about Christianity. No other faith, no other worldview offers you family with God. And this isn't the only place Jesus does it. Even when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Say those two words. How does it start? Our Father. No other faith will offer you that, that God would be your father and that you would be his child. Romans 8 says, we weren't given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption as sons, sons and daughters of God. That is what Jesus accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's the way he made for you. That's the offer on the table for you to be family with God. And if you're used to hearing that in Christianity, I don't think we get how radical and unbelievable that is. Even for for the Israelites here, even for the people in this passage, they they saw God as kind of the collective father of the nation, but for God to be individually, closely loving you and relating to you, that, that was something special for prophets and holy people, not for us, not for the regular people, but no, 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 Jesus is saying, hey, I am the firstborn son of the house and I am giving you my seat at the table. Come on in. How does Jesus want to move you this morning? Listen to me, if you are a foe of God, if you are opposed to Jesus, if, you, if in your heart of hearts you're saying, I don't want this, today you could become a family member. Today you could look at Jesus for who he really is and the offer he's giving you. Not just a religious system, not just more duties, but family with God. He's offering that to you today if you would repent and believe in what he's done for you. You can become a family member today. And if you're not ready for that, that's okay. I can't convince you into that, but maybe the the anxiousness you've been feeling in your heart is there for a reason. Maybe the reason you've been coming around here and and feeling something is because Jesus has been calling to you. Yeah, if it feels like a high-pressure ask, you don't have to surrender to Jesus today. You could if you want to, but maybe you just need to lower your guard for a minute and look at Jesus again without the cynical lens you've been holding in front of him. Maybe, just maybe, if you actually looked at who he is and what he's done, you would see something different than what you've seen before. If you're a foe, you could, you could become a family member today. What about the fans in the room? Jesus doesn't need your cheering. He is deserving of like angels glorifying him forever. He doesn't need you to cheer for him. He's not like, wow, thanks guys, this is cool, right? He doesn't need you in the stands. He actually wants you out of the stands and following him, close to him. He wants to move you out of Jesus being kind of a part of how you see yourself to him being Everything. But what that's gonna mean is you're gonna have to give up this project to build your identity and patch it together with all kinds of things. You're gonna have to surrender some things and repent and believe that Jesus really is Lord and King and Savior and not just trying to teach you a few tips and tricks to have a better life. Would you give up your fandom, your fanhood, to start following him, even if it changes how you view yourself and your money and your time and all these things, will you do that if you actually look at him as Lord? For those of us who are followers, being a follower of Jesus is a good thing, but if you look at the, the list of followers here, they were a motley crew, including Judas, who betrayed him. Followers, I feel like this is the anxiety that I've felt in this passage. Followers, we can stand and fall based on our performance. Your level of closeness to God might might feel like it comes and goes based on how you feel like you're doing. As a follower, you might be living in fear and anxiety and worry because you know you're not measuring up. You know you're not close enough to Him. You know you're not doing everything He's calling you to do. I think Jesus wants to release some of your anxiousness today. And this is what I've been preaching to myself all week. Get your eyes off of yourself and what you've been doing and put them back on the one who called you. Back on the one who's calling you, not just a follower, but actually wants to make you family. That's who you are in Jesus, not just a follower, but a family member with God. A seat at the table prepared for you. If you have trusted in Jesus, then you can trust him to take you all the way to the Father's table. Not just into the fields to work for him. If you see yourself as a follower today, would you allow Jesus to, to move your identity to be a family member? And then for us who are family of God, would you begin to look at the people around you in this family, this motley, diverse, different kind of family with a new sort of love? Not a love based on how someone can perform or how well they're doing, but a love based on what Jesus has done for you and done for them. If we actually live this out like family members, imagine what would happen to our church. Imagine how we would treat ourselves or each other when we fail or fall short. Well, you didn't obey your way into the family. It's okay. You have a seat here. We would look at people with different political backgrounds, like the zealots and the tax collectors, right? Again, imagine Thanksgiving there. Woof. Okay. Like, we would look at each other being so different with such different worldviews and go, hey, but but I'm family with you. When everyone else tells us we should fight, I'm family with you. We would look at the beautiful, multi-ethnic, amazing family of God that, that has unfolded from this moment of the text into history. And we'd begin to love each other differently because we have been loved by God. What is the movement that God wants to have in your life? How is he inviting you to become more of who he's calling you to be today? Jesus makes foes in a family, and we get to be family because of his finished work. Let's pray and worship like a family together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we get to be family because of what you've done. Not because of what we could accomplish or what we could do or bear our way into, but you have called us. Out of opposition, out of being enemies to you, you have called us to be family. And in the room this morning, would you you move us? Spirit, would you give clarity to where we're actually at and would you bring us closer, draw us in and move our hearts so that we can know who we are in you and then know what to do from there? I pray today even that we would worship and we would sing with a new kind of glory and joy and expectation because we're family because you have called us family and done everything to make that happen. And would you teach us to live that out? God, for your glory, for the good of our city. i pray in your name, amen.